0: Either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie! It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so.
1: It stinks! You sorry? You waste all our film! <laughs> it's so bad!
0: Welcome in and happy holidays. I hope you noticed that we have the screening room all decked out for Christmas and we put a lot of work into it. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And first of all, we want to say thank you, big thank you to McKenna Grace for joining us last time. That was... That was fantastic to talk about the movie and to talk with her. She is just, we'll say it again, she's a sweetheart.
1: Yes, she is. Just a charmer.
0: And thanks for all the great comments, too, about the episode. It was a lot of fun to do and hope you enjoyed not only her movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife, but all the movies from last week. But now we're moving ahead to this week, officially the holiday movie season, and when Patrizia Reggiani... An outsider from humble beginnings marries into the Gucci family. Her unbridled ambition begins to unravel their legacy and triggers a reckless spiral of betrayal, decadence, revenge, and ultimately murder in House of Gucci. Gucci
1: is a rare animal. It must be protected.
0: Protected from
1: who? From whoever threatens it. What game are you playing? For a family. You'll play the...
0: Gucci is my name too. I don't consider myself a particularly ethical person. No. But I am fair. I subscribe to unconventional punishments. Well, this is the uh, legendary director Ridley Scott, who's been cranking him out lately, and I know the Release dates have all gotten jumbled, of course, with uh, with the pandemic and everything. But just a few couple of months ago, he had the last duel, which bombed, although it was very, very good. We both liked it. But now he's back with House of Gucci. I really don't think this is going to bomb. I think there's a lot of interest in it because of the cast, and it's just it's just such a trashy, almost almost guilty pleasure type of watch.
1: And what's funny about that is that I think what makes it so fun. Is that it really embraces that, and yet it has like the most a-listy cast you're going to find, right? Adam Driver and Al Pacino, Jared Leto, Lady Gaga, Jeremy Irons. I mean, that's a that's a solid group of people. Plus, uh, not a lot of people may know who it is, but Jack Houston, I thought was great in this movie.
0: Yeah, and uh, this is based on a book, so it's based on true events. And I'll be honest, I really didn't, I really wasn't that familiar with what happened to the Gucci family. I had no idea. Uh, so it's based on true events, and it. It's the unraveling of the Gucci family actually controlling the Gucci empire. And uh, it pretty much starts, at least the movie's uh, take, is that the fuse is lit when Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver, marries this commoner, Patricia, played by Lady Gaga. And that at, at the beginning, Maurizio doesn't really seem interested in following in the family business. He, he wants to be a lawyer, and he just doesn't seem that impressed with it all, and then Once he marries Patricia, she just Lady Macbeths it all the way from New York to Milan, and her ambition seeps into him. And then pretty soon he is making deals that go behind the backs of his father, played by Jeremy Irons, and his uncle, played by Al Pacino, who... Basically, split the, the they own the Gucci Empire fifty-fifty. So you've got double crosses, and then you've got um, Maurizio's cousin Paulo, who's the Fredo in this group, uh, played by Jared Leto, with some pretty impressive older man makeup. He doesn't play an elderly man, but he plays an older man, and that can be that makeup as we've seen in many movies can be difficult. This is pretty good. So you've got this star-powered cast just tearing into this material with spinning the wheel of accents, just try to pick them out, because it gets comical after a while, to be honest. And the actors, all of them, but especially Jared Leto and Al Pacino, trying to out-Italian each other, it gets a little ridiculous in a
1: completely fascinating, entertaining way. It's really funny, actually, because you do have from Lady Gaga, whose, whose accent is very thick, borderline Russian, to Jeremy Irons, who's just Jeremy Irons. You know, he doesn't even cheese. He's just coming on as, a, as an elegant Englishman somehow playing a, an Italian-born dressmaker. It's crazy.
0: And you know what really cemented it for me? Just last night, I was flipping channels. I don't know what you were doing, but I caught a little bit of that show that Stanley Tucci has. I think it's on National Geographic or something. Sir, It's called Searching for Italy. And he goes around. It's basically about food. And I just happened upon a segment where he was talking to this real Italian woman. And i like, oh, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like anything in this movie. <laughs> but That just kind of cemented it for me if we didn't know already. But it's still very entertaining. I think Lady Gaga has a shot, despite the accent, of getting another Oscar nomination. She's very good. And she's the vessel, really, that we see this whole thing, the eyes that we see it unfold through. Uh, and she constantly makes it watchable. And if you if you didn't think there was enough Lady Macbeth in it, there's a bewitching angle when she consults a psychic that I, I guess she really did in real life, played by Salma Hayek. And then some stooges of hers. So then you get a little bit of I, Tonya in this thing. It's just crazy. It is a little bit overlong. It's about two and a half hours. And there certainly are segments that, that drag a little bit. Uh, but also the, the tone, it, it, it has a hard time focusing on a consistent tone. And, and weirdly, I think one of the things that feeds that is the really random soundtrack choices. They were all over the place. I was searching for a thread. Okay, why are these the songs? And they didn't fit chronologically, and they really didn't fit thematically either. I thought that kind of threw off the tone.
1: I also felt like, so you, you mentioned Itania, and that is a film that nailed the tone. Yes. You know, it knew it's like this true crime slash camp sort of a, and, and man, they balanced it perfectly. I feel like Ridley Scott loses that tone a little bit too often. This is, then that's really, I think, the tone that they should have been going yeah, for. Yeah. It's Because it's, it's a true crime story, but it's so insane that it is a little bit campy and comical. Yep. And when they, on the, in the scenes where they nail that, I think it works out really well. And then there are other scenes where you're just, I don't understand why we're looking at this. I mean, there were some fascinating moments of, of Adam Driver's character taking photos or, posing for photos, which just sort of encapsulates how awkward a person he was, which is, they were fun, but at the same time, at two and a half hours, you're like, I don't understand how this contributes to the overall film at all. So there were moments like that that I just, I couldn't figure out.
0: Yeah, I thought curiously, even though it did seem overlong, I still thought the arc of Maurizio, played by Adam Driver, I thought his arc going from sort of uninterested party, uninterested party, to the dark side of ambition still felt a little rushed to me.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. Although Adam Driver was magnificent, as he always is.
0: He was. Loved the cast. But overall, it is very, it is entertaining. It'll make you feel better about your own family uh, if your Thanksgiving went off the rails. Didn't go off the rails as much as these people. Uh, so it is, it's a fascinating story if you're really not that familiar with it as we weren't. And watching this cast dig into it is entertaining. Just, just I think, missed the mark. Uh, certainly, because it reminded me that just a few years ago, Ridley Scott did a, a similar theme uh, focusing on the Getty family uh, with, with power and greed and corruption in that movie, All the Money in the World, which I thought was great. Uh, and this one, just not quite there yet. Of
1: course, that one was sort of a dramatic thriller. Yeah, it was. And, and I think it was the comedic element that sometimes worked well and sometimes threw him off his game.
0: Yeah, but, uh, but this one's still entertaining, and you can find it in theaters right now called House of Gucci. <laughs> Let's go to Disney next for their 60th animated feature. A young Colombian girl has to face the frustration of being the only member of her family without magical powers in Canto.
1: Mirabel, the fate of the family is going to come down to you. I can't do this. Let me help you. The rats told me everything.
0: Don't eat those. Even in our darkest moments,
1: there's light where you least expect it.
0: A lot of stairs. Ah! But at least I'll have a friend. Nope, he flew away immediately. (laughs) Quitter! (laughs) Hey, you know who doesn't have a lot of free time right now? Lin-Manuel Miranda.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because just last week we talked about his directorial debut with a feature, which is one he did not write the music to. Earlier this year, he had a film, an animated film came out that he wrote the entire score to, did all the music to, and then this is the second one where he co-writes the music for this film. And you can always tell. I mean, he has such a a style. When you're listening to a song, you're like, well, this is either somebody who's been inspired to imitate right, Lynn manuel right. Miranda, or it's the real guy. In this case, it's the real guy. And one of the things I think that this movie has going for it is it is packed with music. I mean, there you barely yeah. get a scene without a song. So that's fun. And it's
0: packed with color. And a lot of, as you pointed out in your written review, a lot of um, action for, for the kids. I think it will really uh, hold their attention. And this one we should mention is only in theaters right now. We're used to the Disney stuff also coming out on Disney Plus the same day, day and date. But not for this one. This was only in theaters. And it's, it's just got a lot of nice elements. Yeah, you know, the story centers around this, this magical house that gives the family, at a certain age, the kids go into a room and they're granted magical powers. One has super strength. And one is a shapeshifter. Uh, the, the grandma heals with food, things like that. But for young Mirabelle, who is um, voiced by Stephanie Beatrice from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and also she had a supporting role in uh, in The Heights, she doesn't get one. And so she's frustrated by that, and she doesn't understand why. And then when the magic of the house is threatened, then she begins feeling that she's the cause of that.
1: Or that maybe her gift will be that she can save the magic and the family. And I think that's really where the film draws its power, is that it really taps into everybody's personal feeling that they're not good enough and that they're disappointing their family. And then this sort of adolescent desire to be special and to be the one that saves the family, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons that the, the film is, I think, powerful, is that it speaks to something that feels more universal than maybe what you're going to find in your traditional Disney fair. Uh, on the flip side of that is the stakes don't feel that high, right? Nobody's going to die. right? You know what I mean? And so and there is no real villain, which is a plus and a minus. Disney villains, as you know, that's the only reason yeah. I watch Disney films. I love the villains. But on,
0: on the flip side of that, you also don't get the typical Disney cliche of finding out that she's a
1: princess. It's true. It's true. I mean, I, th- I really think this movie sidesteps an awful lot of Disney cliches. It's to the degree that you almost don't feel like it's a Disney film, which is fresh. I say that is a good thing. Um, And also, I think that it does humanize. I mean, the story is a lot more human than what you're used to. It really is something that I think a lot of people are going to relate to really well. And again, as you said, it's just gorgeous. It's so beautiful bursting with color and energy that I feel like it is it's one that deserves to be seen on a big screen.
0: Yeah agreed and it's nicely culturally diverse as well it really ties into this of, of the Colombian setting ties into the magical realism of the literature that you'll find.
1: It is you know it's, it, and I've always been a fan actually of that of that that style of literature and 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 so it's interesting, for a lot of people, it might not seem that different for an animated film to work magic into it, but the way that they work magic into the story in a way that almost feels every day, I think was very, I mean, a a, a really lovely nod toward the the literature of of Columbia, which which is very unique to its own culture.
0: Yeah, agreed. Three co-directors here, Jared Bush, Byron Howard, and Sharice Castro-Smith, but again, the music, a plus by Lin Manuel Miranda, and as Hope said, even if you didn't know that going in, you'd know it after a couple of a couple of tunes. But I think it's one the whole family will enjoy for the holidays, especially the kids. There's enough here, enough motion, enough eye candy, and the songs to keep it moving. And again, not on Disney Plus. You can only find this in the theaters right now. In Canto, next is the return of Oscar-winning director Jane Campion. Story of charismatic rancher Phil Burbank Inspiring fear and awe in those around him When his brother brings home a new wife and her son Phil torments them Until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love This is called The Power of the Dog A man was made by patience And the odds against him For what kind of man would I be If I did not help my mother
1: Either.
0: If I did not save her Lonesome place out here, Pete, once you get in the swing of things.
1: Here's another remarkable cast.
0: Yeah, I think you're going to find this one uh, mentioned a lot during award season. This is based on a novel, a celebrated novel by Thomas Savage, adapted, the screenplay adapted by Jane Campion as well. And I didn't read the book, uh, but it's one of those adaptations that's done so well that you... It's not long before you think to yourself, "Boy, I bet this is a good book." The way this story rolls out, and it's so, it's so simple. It, it finds its own its own power in what it shows, but never truly tells you. And if you if you didn't know, as I didn't, the power of the dog title comes from scripture, which talks about pleading for loved ones not to be, not to succumb to pack animals. In this case, dogs that attack the vulnerable and that is where Phil the late the lead character here comes in because he is a master of that and he is played masterfully by Benedict Cumberbatch and if he doesn't get a Oscar nomination I will be shocked because he is so great in this leading a fantastic cast and he's so polar he's the polar opposite of his brother his brother played by Jesse Plemons his brother George and they're both wealthy ranchers in 1925 Montana and his brother is soft-spoken and polite and well-dressed and clean and, and very empathetic of others. Phil is none of those things. And when George brings home a new wife, Kirsten Dunst, and her grown son, uh, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, Phil doesn't like any of it, but he zeroes in on Peter, the son, as the target of his scorn. Because Peter is gentle and he's artsy and he's he's smart and in. Phil's eyes, he's not a man, and so he likes to belittle him in front of everybody, especially his ranch hands. But the story turns when Phil's attitude toward Peter turns, and all of a sudden, he decides to become his mentor in teaching him the things he needs to know to get along as a rancher. And Campion sets this great slow burn of dread set against the fantastic uh, visuals of the vastness of the Montana wilderness and then the intimacy of the power dynamic within this family. And you just, you 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 can't help the feeling is, oh my God, this, this caring toward Peter is not real. The, he, is he in danger? What's going to happen here? Or then you get the feeling maybe Peter is seeing Phil a little bit more clearly than we are about his real intentions. And it's fascinating led by this cast and this writing. And the way it unravels this 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 family dynamic. And it also gives not only Benedict Cumberbatch, who's the lead for sure, but the script and the direction gives the other supporting actors the room to create indelible characters of their own. And they all do a fantastic job. And it's a it's just a, a great cast, a great piece of filmmaking. That, uh, again, because of the incredible visuals, deserves to be seen on the big screen. And this is going to be an awards contender for sure. So if you want to see it now beforehand, I would recommend it. It's only in theaters now. A fantastic film called The Power of the Dog. We'll go to Netflix next for the debut as a director for Oscar-winning performer Halle Berry. A disgraced MMA fighter finds redemption in the cage and the courage to face her demons when the son she had given up as an infant unexpectedly reenters her life. This is Bruised.
1: You used to be Jackie Justice. Still am.
0: Yeah, she still got something. Welcome back. Shout out to my bro-
1: uh, We ain't never home, We on the road. Well, what's in your life, girl? Handle your business.
0: Or you gonna do what you always do. It off with somebody else.
1: Pretty mother put me on the front of vote. You scared. I used to be scared. But they don't know the code, no?
0: Sometimes I'm still scared. This about to be the greatest story never told.
1: Never told. This is your shot. You ain't noted, now you know. Now. Show all of them. I wasn't welcome i'm The real I put this song Jackie Justice. If you ain't noted,
0: now you know. Now if you're like me and you heard that synopsis, boy, you, you just think this is a cliche fest. But happily, it's not.
1: I mean, the interesting thing, part of the interesting thing is in the direction. Uh, you have to give her credit because if, if you just look at the story beats, they are far too familiar. They are, it's a scrappy, underdog, you know, damaged, comeback kind of a story. You know, it's it's Rocky, it's Million Dollar Baby, it's Warrior, it's, it's all of those things. But one of the things I think the, that makes the film interesting, and it is interesting, is not only Halle Berry's performance, which is very convincing, but the way the film is far more interested in what makes her the underdog than in what makes her the champion. And, and it's pretty bleak, to be honest with you. I mean, it's you're not going to find a lot of swelling strings or a lot of saccharine moments in this movie. You really aren't. And the times where the writing gives Berry the opportunity to do that, to give you a saccharine moment, She gives those scenes power by making them feel more bittersweet and sad by really just embracing the what's bruised. What is it about this woman that has made her this kind of a fighter? Right. Not just sort of candy coating it with like, boy, she's scrappy, but like, damn, this was a tough life. And this is how she got out of it. And now that she's out of it. And that's just a thing. Once she's out. Once you don't have to fight for it anymore, she just didn't really know what to do. And so she just lost everything. And, and it's, it's very interesting in the way that even though the writing focuses on what you expect it to focus on, the film itself is more interested in what is untold. I really appreciated that about this movie.
0: Yeah, and that's similar to what we were just talking about in The Power of the Dog. And we love movies like that. And it's also, I mean, Holly Berry playing uh, an MMA fighter, let's face it, she's sort of playing against type just because she's cursed with being so attractive.
1: <laughs> you're right. You're you're exactly right. And she, you know, she digs into this. This is not a vanity project. You might think so. She's like, oh, my first my directorial debut, I'm gonna be the lead. But she she's just beat to shit the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, she's always got a black eye, her face is always bruised. I mean, this is very definitely and she, you know, there it's not like there's a moment where she gets all glammed up for some date. It doesn't. It's, and it's, and it is a good performance. She is, she, not only is she very believable, but as you would expect, so, so is the, the, you know, you've got all of the montages where she has to work her way back to top, to top physical condition. You've got the actual fight sequences. And the fight sequences I really appreciated because they're unwieldy. They're not. Gorgeous, you know what I mean? You know, they're not like expertly done. Mm-hmm. They feel like mm-hmm. a person really they're they're sort of draining. They're getting beat up. They look terrible. And then at the end, one of the other things I liked about this movie is it's not pitting this one warrior against another warrior full of of anger and hatred. In the end, it's all good sportsmanship. They just both have a job to do and they are trying to do the job. It is something else that I, I think they're low key moments about this movie that are really impressive to me.
0: Yeah, so another recommendation this uh, holiday season, this first weekend, Bruised, and it's on Netflix. Next up, one you've probably heard about, documentary about the Beatles, featuring in-studio footage that was shot in early 1969 for the 1970 feature film, Let It Be. This is the Beatles' Get Back. What would you like to see the Beatles
1: do now? The show. The show. and live show. We should do the show in a place we're not allowed to do it, getting forcibly ejected. I think that's too dangerous. I mean that is an interesting thought of you all being beaten up. Get back. Get back. Stop it, stop
0: it. What we'd not to do is sit and down. Then we get too excited. Oh get back.
1: Yeah, get back! Get back to where you wants me long. Yeah, get back. Ringo said that he thought we ought to just tell it like it is. Get back the way I think we are.
0: This one's on Disney Plus, three different parts. Full disclosure, we've only seen part one as we tape this, but it's director Peter Jackson who has shown, he's shown with the documentary, uh, And They Shall Not Grow Old from a few years ago, masterful. What he did there with lost footage, hours of lost footage, editing it into an incredible narrative, uh, got my hopes up very high. And so far, in this, just this one part that we've seen, uh, really a must for Beatles fans. And I think that's that's pretty much uh, an easy call here. If you're a Beatles fan or if you're a music fan, uh, you're going to want to see this. And so far, uh, one episode in, it is worth it. I mean, some of this background footage where you get to see them already in part one, you you have some, some myths, I guess, uh, exposed. I mean, you don't see them fighting, screaming at each other. They still seem like friends even toward the end of their life as a group having a good time and certainly they have some disagreements and at the end of part one is when george harrison actually leaves the band for a few days but uh yeah hi- highly recommended uh, especially for beatles fans you probably know that already for fans of music biographies and music documentaries definitely worth checking out and we're interested in parts two and three here probably uh, we'll start as soon as we get done taping this <laughs> and that is the beatles get back it's out right now on disney plus Next is a drama set inside a pre-war duplex in downtown Manhattan. It follows the course of an evening in which the Blake family gathers to celebrate Thanksgiving. As darkness falls outside the crumbling building, mysterious things start to go bump in the night and family tensions reach a boiling point. This is the humans. There's this comic book I was obsessed
1: with as a kid. It's about this species of half-alien, half-demon creatures and the scary stories that they tell each other. Are all about us humans um, I, didn't I know you think there's something wrong with me I, it's not a ever, still, I was like a murderer and I'm trying to apologize
0: but knowing that this is what matters right here <laughs> because everything anyone's got no matter who you are everything you have
1: goes well that's a positive way of looking at things
0: <laughs> Wow. Do that at a funeral day. Now, this is out right now in theaters, but actually it's uh, streaming as well. You can find it on Showtime, which is where we found it. And this this is a fascinating movie. It's based on a Tony Award-winning play that we were not familiar with. And it is adapted and directed by the writer of the play, Stephen Karam. And... I not only found the story and the performances uh fascinating but the way he shoots it was endlessly compelling to me.
1: Totally agree. I mean, you know, they're they're in this it's a two-story somewhat dilapidated new home that the young Bridget and her boyfriend have moved into and everybody in the rest of the family has come to celebrate Thanksgiving in this new place with them. And so the way that he shoots it uh, is he's very often around the almost Roseberry's baby ask where he's around a corner. He's shooting down a hallway. You're only catching part of the family. Often the family is quite at a distance from you at the end of the hallway. Um, so the close ups are few and far between. And, and, and I think which gives them power when you do get them. And uh, and the way that he sort of cordons off certain sections of the family at a time. So the whole family's in the room. But because of the way that it's shot, you're only seeing two people at a time. And they may not even be the people who are talking. It really is an incredibly, a very, I think, organic and interesting way, first of all, to bring the scenery, right, the setting of the home into the story to create a character around that setting. And also to kind of mix up what does, would I think another in another case, feel too much like a play.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because the uh, close-ups of the cast are few and far between. But there are close-ups. There are close-ups of fixtures and walls and pieces of the architecture, which was fascinating to me because, you know, the director is directing your attention and there's no way he could have done this on the stage. Okay. Everybody now look at this fixture on the wall, but he's doing that a completely cinematic way to direct your attention for the film version, which I thought was fascinating. And it gave me the impression that this family was being watched you're you're so far at a distance, or you're outside a window, and your vision is blurred a little bit. It was fascinating, and the cast. This made me think they had to have rehearsed this so much because they feel the characters feel so lived in. The cast is so great, going back and forth. It's Richard Jenkins as the father, a Jane Houdyshell as the mother, and then the young couple that have just moved in. Richard is Stephen Young, who who everybody got to know even more last year in Minari. And he's sort of the outsider here because this seems to be his first Thanksgiving with his uh, new girlfriend's family. And his girlfriend is Bridget, played by Beanie Feldstein, the one daughter. And then her sister, Amy, is played by Amy Schumer. And then they've got old grandma Momo, uh, played by June Squibb, who's basically in a wheelchair much of the time and doesn't say much. But it's a fascinating family because they're just they just seem so authentic as they bicker back and forth and they bring up old wounds and they say biting remarks some that got us like, oh, no, you didn't go there, did you, over Thanksgiving, that it just seems so real. And then as it goes along, things are learned about the family, secrets are exposed, and, yeah, some some weird things go bump in the night. And it's just – I just found it so fascinating. And ultimately, I didn't know much about it going in, but it was still different than what I expected.
1: Yeah, I agree with you entirely. And I love – I mean, the the use of the building, it's a building that at one point – you know, many years ago was very solid and it is really showing his decay. And I think that that's part of also the family dynamic because yes. because Eric, Richard Jenkins, and his wife, they're very dedicated and devoted to his mother who is, who is in the last stages of Alzheimer's. And I think what they're part of the... the the complexity of the film is that they're looking at this younger generation that just doesn't see things the way they see things at all. And I think Richard Jenkins character, he's staring at this house that's falling apart. And he's, I think seeing the change in generations, there may not be somebody who is this dedicated to him 20 years from now, you know, that, that everything is different with this new generation. And he feels like he's, he's it's, it's slipping away from him. I think, I mean, Richard Jenkins, this is no surprise that he is a masterful actor and, and such an incredible performer in generating empathy, regardless of the character he's playing. But he is just amazing in this movie.
0: Yeah, and just a great adaptation of his own play by Stephen Karam. It is called The Humans. And again, you can find it in theaters and also on Showtime. Well, so far, nothing but good ones. And then there's this one. Set in, set in 1998, this origin story explores the secrets of the mysterious Spencer Mansion and the ill-fated Raccoon City. This is Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City.
1: What were Umbrella doing here? This is where they're experimenting on him. What the... So it's I think the sixth. I think it's the sixth Resident Evil film, and this one was taken over by Johannes Roberts, who did Strangers Pray at Night. He did the Forty Seven Meters Down film, so a horror director taking this on, and I think that that's a good thing, you know, uh, because you know for the for a video game adaptation to work on screen, it has to also be cinematic in some way. I do feel like, as, as did most of the others in this in this franchise, it falls too much back on the video game itself. It yeah. doesn't really give a lot of depth to the different situations that you hit in the video game to start shooting at zombies. It doesn't, I think, add much to that. I just don't think it really works very well. It feels like, if you're not a fan of the video game, if you've not played the video game, it just feels like every other zombie movie that you maybe saw in the late 80s and early 90s, Um, And if you are a fan of the video game, you're probably just thinking, I wish I was just playing the video game.
0: Yeah, I'm just, as we've mentioned a few times, we're not gamers. So any excitement that a movie that ties into the first-person shooter type of experience does nothing for me. Maybe that's on me. I don't know. But you're right. It has to be—a movie version has to be cinematic. And this one, it it was just boring. Uh, To me, it really was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really think for a video game to work as a film— you have to be able to, A, draw in people who don't play the video game as a movie, and B, draw in people who play the video game and don't make them just wish they were playing the video game instead. You know, because I feel like there's something, obviously, there's you're, it's so much more visceral when you are actually a part of the action that's taking place that you have to give them a reason not to be that, just to be watching it passively. I don't think this movie does that.
0: I did appreciate Donald Logue's appearance. <laughs> he came on the screen like, hey! <laughs> so... His, he plays a, a police chief, um, kind of wisecracking, as you might guess, from Donal Logue. And so I did a, appreciate that.
1: I mean, I didn't dislike it as much as you did because I can fall. You know, I have nostalgia for a certain type of film. And this reminded me of, you know, all the movies I used to watch on HBO when I was a kid. It, it doesn't break new ground, but it's not terrible at what it does. CGI monsters. How, what do you think? Where do they rate? Well, They weren't terrible. They weren't great. They weren't super impressive. They were fine. Well, even
0: early on when there was a bird, an effective bird, I thought, oh, is yeah, that? Yeah, no, that wasn't that very was good, great, the, but no. Yeah, so anyway, it is, uh, if you're a fan of the Resident Evil series, you might like it. And stick around because there's an extra scene halfway through the credits. Might give you an idea as to uh, whether or not they are done. And I would guess they don't want to be done. I uh, hope that's not a spoiler. Uh, welcome to Raccoon City. It is in the theaters now. And we'll finish out with another horror, horror thriller, twin brothers running a haunted house and an ins- Twin brothers running a haunted house and an aspiring actress are all affected by the disappearance of a young girl. This is called Autumn Road. You have no control over what your body does. No control over what you are. This doesn't have anything to do with him. Does Charlie! Come mad at me, Charlie! I can see it! I can see it all over your face! I can feel it!
1: What do you want from me? Ah! What we need is some change. I can give that to us. So Riley Cusick does it all here. Uh, not only does he write and direct, but he plays the twins who are running uh, a you know Halloween haunt. And Lorelai Linklater, uh, Richard Linklater's daughter, who also was the the star, one of the stars of Boyhood, she returns to the scene of the crime. This is the last place anyone saw her sister 10 years ago as a kid. So she comes back. She starts spending some time with these uh, twin brothers, and things get creepy. It's not a bad film, actually. It has a lot going for it. I think the, the real problem here is that Riley Cusick probably bit off more than he could chew that maybe he shouldn't have focused on directing and starring in both roles. It feels a little threadbare. The performances aren't always uh, as good as they ought to be. It's one of those things where you think, yeah, this, there was something here, but it just didn't turn out as well as it should have. And that was also our reviewer, Kat McAlpine's opinion of the film. You can see her full review at MadWolf.com. She
0: did appreciate the violence. Uh, she did say the violence is shocking. It just never really meets a resolution. So, yeah, check out her review. And that is uh, available uh, streaming on VOD right now called Autumn Road. Well, the lobby and Daniel Baldwin, the schlocketeer, taking the holiday off. Well deserved. So we'll uh, meet up with him again next week. In the meantime, looking ahead to next week at the movies, we've got Joaquin Phoenix His latest uh, to lead the pack next week called Come On, Come On.
1: Also, the mountain climbing Expedition 14 Peaks.
0: Ooh, I'm going to watch that tonight. Mm -hmm. Also, Benedetta, which you just watched.
1: I did. I can't wait to tell you about it next week. And Encounter.
0: Hey, I like the title of this one. A movie called Wolf.
1: And also a movie called Flea, but F-L-E-E, not E-A.
0: Okay, and the latest Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Is that a remake or a new one?
1: It's a new one, as far as I know. And also um, Advent Calendar.
0: And Blonde Blonde. Purple. That's the pack next week. Might be some additions to that. Usually are. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about the big ones. Any of them this week. House of Gucci or Encanto or Power of the Dog, Halle Berry and Bruised. We're always up for keeping the conversation going. You can find us on Twitter. That's easy. At Mad Wolf M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our horror movie only podcast called Fright Club. That's all there at MadWolf.com. So until next week, keep in touch. Have a great holiday season. Kick off to your holiday season and uh, save a drumstick for us. Well, no. Do you like drumsticks? I do not. You want the mashed potatoes. potatoes. If you want to know how deep Hope's love of mashed potatoes goes, remember that scene with Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where he's building up that mountain in mashed potatoes? This means something. This is important. That would be like half of your serving. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Plus, what a waste of deliciousness.
0: <laughs> the point is, she likes the mashed potatoes. So enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. She is mashed potato love and hope Madden. He's <laughs> George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner.
1: Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.